So the topic is environmental interventions for chronic disease prevention, uh, the Healthy Stores projects. And I'm going to start off with a couple, very quickly, talking a little bit about uh, what we know about the impact or the relationship between the food environment and obesity and chronic disease. Then I'm going to talk about some of the major approaches that have been used or are being used to change the food environment. I'm going to spend a fair amount of time talking about uh, my own work in the city of Baltimore where we've been working for the past decade or so trying to, you know, testing out different strategies for improving the food environment. And um, a last little piece on multi-institutional trials. So what do we know about uh, the food environment and obesity? We've actually been conducting a, uh, we as in many other people, not just me, uh, have been conducting a number of different studies um, looking at these associations. Some of the things that we're pretty clear on is that um, availability of foods or healthy foods is associated with diet and youth body mass index or obesity. And that um, the less access you have to supermarkets or other full service kinds of grocery stores, it's associated with higher rates of BMI and obesity and other chronic diseases. We also see that the further away you are from a supermarket, the greater your risk for higher BMI. And the type of food store is very important. So it's not just how close you are to any food store or food source, but the type of food source. So if you're close to a corner store or a convenience store or a fast food restaurant, that's actually negatively uh, a, a negative factor. So the closer you are um, to one of these types of places is, um, oops, it went back on me. One of these types of places, um, the higher the, the rates you have of uh, BMI and associated chronic disease. We know that small food stores and carryouts tend to sell energy dense foods and few foods that would, you would normally consider part of a healthy diet. And we also know that pricing is a factor, so that pricing of healthy foods in small food stores tends to be higher than in supermarkets. And in low income in com communities, food availability is, is related to diet and BMI among youth. So considering that we know some things about the relationship between the food environment and rates of obesity and chronic disease, how might we go about changing some of those things? So there's several main approaches we can take. One approach is to change access to foods within existing retail food stores or prepared food sources. So you could think about decreasing the availability of unhealthy foods. You could think about conversely increasing the availability of healthier foods, especially in small food stores. You can think about changing the physical location of foods within stores. So for example, the healthier foods that might be right next to the cash register up front, maybe moving those away. Or maybe the shelf that you look at within a food store, whatever's at eye level, those are the foods that people at least uh, uh, gravitate towards at the beginning, changing the location of foods in terms of shelving. We can think about renovating stores. So if a small store doesn't currently have uh, ways to display or to keep produce fresh, providing them with coolers, that sort of thing. And we can also talk about manipulating price as a strategy. Another approach to changing the food environment is the idea of changing access to, to foods within neighborhoods. So not just within retail food settings, but within neighborhoods in general. So for example, um, there's been a lot of work in Philadelphia and some other um, cities to incentivize supermarket chains to bring in uh, supermarkets and other large food stores into low-income neighborhoods where they do not currently exist. So building new supermarkets. Another approach, developing farmers markets to bring in uh, local produce, um, especially into uh, neighborhoods that don't have current good access to those foods. We can talk about improving transportation. So in other words, um, uh, maybe it's not an issue of bringing the food store to the people, but figuring out how to bring the people to uh, the food store through um, free or reduced cost transportation. And then something that some people disagree with me about, whether in truth it is an environmental intervention, is the idea of changing the setting for the provision of information. And I personally would say that um, point of purchase or POP um, information is a way of changing the food environment that could lead to change. So when you think about it, if you catch people when they're just about to make their choice of what they're going to eat for lunch that day, or just about to make a choice about what they're going to cook for their family for dinner that night, 
or maybe their weekly food shopping, that's a better place to try to influence behavior than the counseling session that might be hours or even days removed from those kinds of decisions. So catching people right at the point of purchase, that may be a way of changing the food environment. Um, there are, of course, many uh, policy approaches that are being tried, including changing or setting store standards. So, you know, working with small food stores to um, require them to stock certain kinds of foods. We can talk, and you're probably aware of a lot of efforts that have taken place in New York and California and other settings to uh, apply different types of menu labeling. For example, labeling the calorie, uh, the amounts of calories in different kinds of foods as a kind of policy change. We can talk about rezoning. Um, Baltimore City is actually in the first, the first time in about 30 years going through a comprehensive rezoning process where they're making decisions about what kinds of buildings or what kinds of, of, uh, of housing or what kinds of commercial features will exist in what parts of the city of Baltimore. And so you could think about chain, and, and this includes creating a potentially a series of rules about what kinds of food sources have to go or can only go in certain places. So rezoning is another option or an approach to policy. And then we can talk about taxes. So for example, there's been some effort largely unsuccessful to date to, to, to implement sugar, sweetened beverage taxes in different states and cities. Another approach to changing the food environment is to think about working in multiple settings or institutions at the same time. A lot of the efforts that have taken place in the past couple of decades have focused on one setting, so just schools or just work sites or maybe just food stores. And then we all know that very often there's marginal or very limited success in those kinds of interventions because why? People, the kids learn what they learned at school, they eat well at school, but then they leave the school and they go outside and they, and they have the same old junk food that was always available to them. So can, you th can we think about integrating interventions in multiple settings at the same time? Costly, but potentially effective. So working in food stores, restaurants, schools, work sites, and so forth. And then there are many other approaches that we could consider. This could include things like improving the distribution of foods. So working with local distributors or producers of foods to make sure that the foods that are produced locally stay local and aren't shipped somewhere else. For um, some years back, I worked on a project in Hawaii. And in that project, although there were many low-income Pacific Islander communities, Less than half a mile away from those communities, there would be local, little local farms, but the produce didn't go to those communities. It went to the tourist hotels in Waikiki. So we can think about improving or changing the distribution of foods. And we can talk about improving local production or increasing, you know, bringing manufacturers into this, increasing the nutrient content or improving the nutrient content of foods or even changing the packaging of foods. And you may think, that's about food labeling, and I suppose that is, but we can also think about the size of packaging. In Baltimore City, the price point at which uh, children will purchase a bag of chips is about 25, 35 cents to get a very small bag of chips. So unfortunately, the healthier snack options, maybe baked chips or something like that, are not currently available in those small sizes. You have to spend a dollar to get those. So essentially, that size of packaging or the available sizes of packaging plays a role in terms of the actual choices that people have. So for the past decade or so, we've been trying to address these kinds of issues through a series of projects we call the Healthy Store Programs. In fact, they're not all or even exclusively in stores, but they certainly started out that way. And our work um, has mostly focused on low-income ethnic population, ethnic minority populations around the U.S. and in Canada and, the, and in the Pacific Islands. It includes work with um, a lot of American Indian work with the Saginaw Chippewa, uh, with, um, with the Navajo, with Apache, with First Nations in Canada. It includes work with Inuit in the Canadian Arctic. It includes work in Baltimore City. Um, a couple of these projects are Baltimore City based and it includes work with Pacific Islanders in Hawaii and in the Marshall Islands. And we don't have time to talk about all of these different projects. I'm actually gonna emphasize the work that was done in Baltimore 
primarily. So I want to start off by giving the example of um, one of the earliest projects, which was called Baltimore Healthy Stores. And this project saw as its goals three primary goals, to increase availability and access to healthy foods for especially low-income residents of Baltimore City, to promote these foods at the point of purchase, so point of purchase promotions, and to work in collaboration with community agencies, the city of Baltimore, and local food sources. This is the city of Baltimore. And these purple areas here are food deserts. How many people have heard this term, food deserts? About half of you have heard this term. Um, are there food deserts around here? I'm guessing. Um, so food deserts, well, it's variously defined based on the setting, but generally it's uh, a census tract or a region or an area which the, a certain proportion of the population is below a certain income level. So a certain proportion are usually at the poverty level or below. And they are far away or a certain distance away from a supermarket. And that's the, usually those two features, although people have looked at other factors as well, are part of what defines a food desert. So if you look at the city of Baltimore here, you can see that most of the food desert areas, these purple areas, are census tracts that are kind of in the east and western parts of the city. And in fact, we refer to these parts of the city as East Baltimore and West Baltimore. And the stars um, stand for supermarkets. So if you go into East and West Baltimore, you're, you don't see Safeways, Giants, you don't see big supermarkets. Uh, you would actually, if I plopped each of you in a different location in East or West Baltimore and said, walk in a certain number of blocks in any direction, the first thing that you would undoubtedly see after a block or two is one of these. So it's a corner store. Uh, you'd probably have to walk a mile or more or even further before you were to actually get to the supermarket. Actually, Kitty Corner, right across from the majority of corner stores, there's a carryout restaurant. So, um, so that's what the food environment looks in this particular setting. If you go inside some of the corner stores, you see that they're usually pretty dismal places on the inside. They're often very dark, not well lighted. The food availability or healthy food availability is quite low. Something that you see in about a quarter or so of our um, corner stores is what we call behind the glass corner stores. So actually you walk into the anteroom of the corner store and you, you don't actually get to touch or see the actual food, but you can, you talk to this guy right here and you say, I want some Fruit Loops or whatever. You put your money right there, you rotate it back to him. He takes the money, he puts the Fruit Loops, he rotates it back to you. So you can imagine if you're trying, you know, us in public health, we're always thinking, well, let's teach people about reading food labels and, and so forth and how to choose healthier, you know, fresh vegetables and fruits. Those sorts of things are frequently not an option in some of the stores in Baltimore. So as part of the work that we do for each of these trials, we do a lot of what we call formative research. And this is essentially information gathering to help us plan our interventions or our programs. And the, intervention, uh, the information gathering that we do combines both, usually both qualitative and quantitative approaches. We're interested in food, so a lot of our interviewing is about food and how people select food and, and why they might or might not select different kinds of foods, their priorities relating to food and food preparation and so forth. And we also, um, uh, so that's a lot of the, the qualitative part that we collect. Very frequently we do quantitative data collection as well. Usually this is in the form of 24-hour dietary recalls as a way of quantifying those or identifying those foods that contribute the most energy, fat, sugar, what have you, to the diet so that we can intervene on those foods that are likely to make the greatest, have the greatest impact on um, improving the diet in that setting. So before we do anything, we talk to people and we talk to community members. In Baltimore City, the vast majority of community members are African-American. And this is what you hear when you talk to the community members. I'd love to buy or eat healthy foods, but they are too expensive. They're not available in the stores that I shop in, or they are of poor quality in the stores that I shop in. Do, do you hear similar, th or I'm not sure if any of you have asked these questions of consumers, but do you hear similar things here? 
I've actually found that wherever I, I've worked, whether it's Pacific Islander settings or American Indians, First Nations, I hear very similar things when I talk to consumers. That they'd love to buy or eat healthier foods, but it's not available, or it costs too much, or it's of poor quality, or all three, some combination thereof. So this is interesting, um, but whose voice is left out? Who are we, who are we not talking to? The store owners, the retailers. And so, as you know, formative research is about getting multiple perspectives, multiple points of view. When you talk to store owners and managers, they say, I'd love to stock healthy foods, but nobody buys them. <laughs> or the last time I stocked whole wheat bread, low fat milk, you can sort of fill in the blank, uh, it just sat on the shelves. It went bad. I lost money. So, what we've and, and these responses from store owners, from retailers, also seem to go across the board from every setting that I've worked in pretty much. And so what we have here is uh, an impasse, I guess you'd have to say, a difference in perception, but it's also in some ways a classic supply and demand issue. So these guys won't supply the food because they think there's no demand. These guys are apparently not demanding the food because they think it's not worth or there's going to be no response, and so there will be no increase in supply. So in fact, in a lot of the work that we did or have done in different settings is to convince each party that we're going to do something about the other party. So convincing store owners by saying, you know, if you just increase the supply of these foods, we will do a lot of point of purchase promotion to increase demand for these foods. And telling the community members, if you just ask for these foods, if you demand it and buy it when it's there, we're gonna, we'll make sure the store owners supply those foods. Okay. Too many questions, but um, <laughs> too many diverse questions. So uh, one of them uh, related to uh, food stamps. That's, I'm always able to remember the last question that was asked. So in fact, uh, although I won't say it's about food stamps, uh, a lot of the intervention that I'm going to show to you eventually, we did a lot of promotion of WIC foods or WIC eligible foods. And so we do try to work within the food assist existing or current patterns of usage of food assistance programs in the community and try and build off of that. That, that only makes sense in these particular settings. Retreat back to the second and the first question. So um, maybe it's not surprising to you, but uh, the word healthy carries in many settings a very negative set of connotations. So the word calling something a healthy food, in fact, to many consumer settings that I work on means tasteless. Um, it also could mean expensive and, and those sorts of things. So in fact, the verbiage that we use in the way when we're promoting those foods, we don't actually use the word healthy. Even though I'm calling the project Baltimore Healthy Stores, it's not usually about identifying healthy foods. You asked also a question that relates to cost or expense, uh, the cost of these things. Um, we actually spend, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about this in a, um, in a moment, a lot of time identifying healthier options to promote that are at the same cost or less of the foods that are commonly being consumed now. Um, so for example, the cost in most of these settings of low-fat milk is about the same co cost as whole milk or 2% milk. The cost of Cheerios or a higher fiber type of cereal is about the same cost or a little bit less for the most part as Fruit Loops and Frosted Flakes and so forth. And so we actually spend, we're very concerned about the, um, the consumer perspective of cost. The first question now I'm remembering is about bias. And um, when you say bias, you mean is it representative of the opinion of people or? Right. So I would say that the worst way to get people to accurately report on their feelings, attitudes, behavior is to ask it as a direct question, to be very honest. Be I think that people do tend to experience they, uh, a lot of bias in terms of favoring what they think the interviewer what wants to hear. A better way is a contextualized, in-depth interview with, it, with someone where you really spend some time digging, probing on the key themes and issues that they bring up in their interviews as a kind of emergent design of the research, which is sort of a hallmark of qualitative approaches. And so our formative work really does emphasize 
talking to people in depth and at length to really understand why it, you know, I've kind of simplified it because otherwise I'd be presenting 20 tables of quotes and that sort of thing. I've simplified it here, but this represents actually quite a lot of talking to different people. So I hope that answers some of your uh, questions. This is um, some data from Manuel Franco, who did a um, study of the food environment in Baltimore City. He called it shoe leather epidemiology, where they basically randomly identified about a third of the census tracts in the city and then walked the streets of each one and found every single retail food source, went inside each one and used an instrument which was a variation on an instrument called the NEMS-S, Nutritional Environment Measurement Survey for Stores, developed by Karen Glanz. And you know, basically he saw what I, ba what I just told you, supermarkets have a much greater number of healthy foods available. And if you look at um, different kinds of food stores, the, the numbers of different kinds of healthy foods are quite minimal. So here's Baltimore again. And for Baltimore Healthy Stores, for this pilot trial, we worked in East Baltimore as the intervention area and West Baltimore as the comparison area. And you'll remember that East and West Baltimore were the sites of the census tracts that had the highest rates of food deserts. And we sampled about oh, eight or nine uh, food stores in East Baltimore and eight or nine in West Baltimore for uh, intervention. And we also sampled or worked with about 175 respondents in total from both settings. So I would say this was a quasi-experimental trial. How do we decide what foods to promote? How do we decide what behaviors to promote? How do we decide what um, what messaging to use or what types of channels should be used to communicate with people. One way that we do that is through, a, through community workshops. And so each of the projects that we do have a series of community workshops where we invite stakeholders, community members, members of local community organizations, store owners, um, uh, people from the local departments of health and what have you. And we go through a brainstorming and prioritization process where they hear a little bit about the formative work that we've done, but then they give us their ideas about what the program should look like, what foods should be promoted, what foods would be economically and culturally acceptable to the population we're working at. So that's part of how we obtain that information. So this is um, what came out of that process for Baltimore Healthy Stores, a program that took place over about a year in five different phases, which focused on different um, types of things, healthy snacks, cooking at home, and so forth. And in each of the phases, there were um, a several foods that we asked the stores to stock. In small food stores, corner stores, generally these foods were not currently being stocked. In supermarkets, generally they were already being stocked. So this is part of the environmental change component. We want to increase the supply of healthier foods. And so we would, we would ask the stores to stock a few, a few foods per store per phase. We didn't come with a list of 50 foods and say, stock all these now, right? Small food stores operate at a thin profit margin, and they were deathly afraid that we were going to lose the money. And you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks means nothing to the supermarket, but to one of these small stores, it's a, it's a sizable amount of money. So, um, we would start in the earlier phases with, I, with what I call the low-hanging fruit, which interestingly is not fruit, right? So fruit, it's not fruit because fruit's perishable. Fruit, you have to find a supplier who, who can get you fruit, and very often wholesalers and the other people that were used by these stores did not supply, certainly not much variety, but generally not much in the way of fruit. So we would start with things that have a, a longer shelf life, maybe higher fiber, lower sugar, cereals, those sorts of things. We would provide some incentives to the stores um, to stock those foods in the intervention area. This included stocking guidelines, promotional materials to create demand. Uh, we did a lot of different things in the stores. I'll say more about that. We also gave a incentive card to the, whole, to the store owner to use at their wholesaler, about $25 to $30. The idea was that they would use that, in, that gift card to purchase a small supply of those foods, sort of to prime the pump. They didn't want to run the risk of stocking five, six, seven things that they frequently were sure would not sell. Uh, so we would do that. 
And on, for a couple of the, of the foods, we actually provided a small supply because it was hard, it was very difficult to get, they, they said their wholesalers didn't carry those foods. And so we wanted to at least see if we can get in this pilot trial that to happen. Yeah. about five to 10 units. So if we're talking about, you know, low fat milk, five to 10 half gallons or whatever. It, it was just, just a one shot thing per phase. So it was just five or 10 units of the food, of each food at the beginning of the phase, just to get it started. And then they would have to keep it going if they wanted to keep it going. Um, each phase had materials that were uh, part of the way that we try to increase um, demand at the point of purchase. These are some of the posters that were developed by a local artist um, that were supported, this one supported the snack phase. We tried um, educational displays. We had different flyers that were given out. We tried coupons, a variety of different things. We had interactive sessions in the stores where we would provide taste tests. We did little giveaways, those sorts of things, um, again, in both the large and the small stores. I haven't emphasized this point, but I want to emphasize it now which is that in Baltimore City, about 80% of the small store owners are Korean or Korean-American. And there is a whole part of this that I haven't delved into which relates to the cultural differences between the stores that are primarily owned and operated by Korean-Americans and the consumer base which are, who are primarily African-American. What we found was that we needed to actually develop a whole component of the intervention in Korean delivered by a Korean-speaking person to the Korean-American store owners. I'm not sure what the story is here in this particular setting um, in terms of small stores, but this is the way it is in Baltimore and many other settings. Other settings I know very often it's Hispanic-owned stores or it might be Middle East owned by people from the Middle East or other settings, but in Baltimore City it's the vast majority Korean-American. And so we developed and delivered um, materials in Korean educational materials, and we also developed a series of cultural guidelines in Korean. What we found was that um, a lot of the, I guess you'd have to say, negative relationships between the store owners and their clientele were related to cultural differences about how you show respect in one, differs greatly in traditional Korean culture and from the African-American setting that we were working in. Respect in a Korean setting is more about not looking someone directly in the eye, not touching them when you give them back their money, not engaging with them very much socially in that particular setting. And it's almost the reverse in, in um, African-American setting in Baltimore. So we had to, we worked on some of these cultural issues as well. We did a lot of evaluation. We did a lot of process evaluation. We uh, evaluated the program in terms uh, at the store level and at the consumer level. But I will say that this was a pilot trial. The goal, and frankly, we didn't think we were powered to see any change at the consumer level or not much at the consumer level, mainly because we were working in about 10, 9, 10 food stores in an area of Baltimore that probably had 100 little corner stores and so forth. We were working in very much the, you know, like, the minority of the number of stores. So we didn't think we would have all that much effect. This um, slide shows some of the effect that we did have and uh, we were pleased to see that we had some impact at the store level. So this is stocking of 10 healthy foods at intervention, in intervention versus comparison stores. There was no significant difference at baseline. That's good, we don't want that. Um, immediately post phase of promotion, there were more st healthier foods being stocked at the um, intervention stores than at the comparison stores. And then we actually went back to the store six months post-completion of the trial. And again, um, there were more of those healthier foods in stock. We saw essentially the same results in terms of reported sales at the stores. So there were increases in higher levels of sales of the healthier foods in intervention versus comparison stores and at six months post-intervention as well. We also surprisingly to me, saw some impact at the consumer level. Um, we saw that after some adjustments, we saw there was a significant impact on food preparation methods associated with intervention and frequency of purchase of healthier promoted foods. So a big question that I frequently get at this point is, that sounds really great for Baltimore, but here 
In Colombia, it's really different because of X, Y, and Z, or here in wherever I am, it's different. So we've actually completed a systematic review. It's, it's in press in, in the journal Preventing um, Chronic Disease. And we found 16 trials that worked in small food stores that had impact data. And what we seem to be finding across the board in this review is that um, they're, at the store level, they're able to these interventions seem to be pretty good at increasing availability of healthy foods and improving those sales of healthy foods. And then where measured, we, see significant, we do see significant effects pretty much across the board in terms of improved consumer knowledge and, again, where measured, dietary or food-related behaviors. So I think there is some argument to be made that these kinds of approaches just at the small store level um, have applicability to a wide variety of different settings. Um, this particular trial is, was adopted by the, um, the CDC Center for, of Excellence for Training and Research Translation at University of North Carolina as a research-tested intervention, and it's currently being disseminated to city and state health departments um, around the country, and we're pretty happy about that. So I mentioned to you that if you were to walk a block or two in any direction in Baltimore City, you'd hit, run into a corner store, and that if you went right across the street from that corner store, you'd find a carry-out restaurant. And by the way, it's not a McDonald's. It's not a fast food restaurant, at least not in Baltimore. It's most likely going to be a individually or family-owned um, carry-out. And if you were to do a little research, you'd, you'd find out that, in fact, more than half the calories consumed by people in this particular setting are coming from prepared food sources. So it's really important to think about when we're thinking about changing the food environment, not just where people, sometimes we have this vision that people are all out there buying food and cooking gourmet meals at home, and, but think about yourself. I mean, how many meals do you each, do each of us really cook at home versus how many do we catch on the fly or we eat out or what have you? Um, these trends are um, happening all over the place. And so we decided to run a pilot trial called Baltimore Healthy Carryouts in uh, and in um, low-income areas of Baltimore City. There's actually 625 carryouts in the city of Baltimore. We worked in only eight of those carryouts, not 625. Um, and we phased the intervention in three stages. So we went, we went through a process of formative research and community workshops, just as I've described before, but I'm be repetitive to say it all over again. So um, we went through f uh, three phases of the intervention, menu labeling, introducing healthier sides and healthier beverages, and third, introducing healthier combination meals and reduced prices. So this is what signage looks like in the carryouts in Baltimore City, at least before. It's usually handwritten, it's usually on cardboard, it's not very pretty. So we said, the first thing we want to do, by the way, we were a little scared of this one, because we said, well, it's one thing to get stores to stock a few foods. It's another thing to work with carryouts to change the foods they actually offer or how they prepare those particular foods. So we said, let's start with something easy or something that will help build rapport in those particular settings. So this is the before picture of what signage looks like, and this is the after picture. So we redid their menus. We redid them very nicely, and we identified healthier options, healthier options, not you know, USDA defined less than three grams of fat per serving, whatever healthy. It's healthier options on, that existed on the menu. Uh, we didn't call them healthy. We didn't call them low fat. We said fresh. And that's partly because in our formative work, we found, again, as I said to you before, the word healthy has all sorts of negative, negative connotations, but the word fresh was very positive. And we identified healthier options by highlighting them with pictures and so forth. And um, so this is what they looked like after. Uh, most of these carryouts also had a, um, you know, a, as part of their takeout business, had little takeout menus, and so we, we, we worked on those as well. We did kinds of signage, different kinds of signage in the stores. The second phase focused on um, healthy sides and healthy beverages. So part of it was promoting currently available healthier sides and beverages in those settings. But we also introduced, we asked the stores to begin to st stock or sell other kinds of healthier sides, 
These are some of the ones that we, we worked on. And, um, and occasionally, very few occasions, we would provide starter stock of, those, of some of those sites. We would provide point of purchase promotions for those healthier sites. So the idea was build trust, build rapport first by doing a nice menu for them that they love, because you saw how me those menus were before, and then, then ask them to do something harder, like stocking some healthier choices. We would do some additional promotional posters for those healthier sides. The third phase was what I thought would be the hardest, I think I was right, um, getting them to change food preparation methods. If you looked at how in these carryouts, what kinds of food preparation facilities were available, it was deep fryers, deep fryer than another deep fryer next to that. I mean, lots of deep frying, that was the main method. So um, we wanted to work with them to offer additional options for cooking. We also provided or uh, requested that they stock or provide as a kind of environmental change switch over from regular mayonnaise to low-fat mayonnaise. You don't have to tell their customers about that. They could just do it. And we, we um, tested out some price promotion um, or price reduction strategies. So this was our method, the George Foreman grill. Uh, and so we actually gave them a George Foreman grill. And we, pro and we provided training in the use of it and how to you know, not batter a piece of chicken, and, but to marinate it and to you know, store it and then to cook it on this grill. How did we keep, how did we track um, things? Well, what we've done is each store owner, and by the way, more than half of the carryout owners are also Korean American in this particular setting. Um, each time they would write a slip, they would, uh, an order slip, they would, w once they've completed the order, they'd stick it in this little metal box for us. So we have every single order slip in these eight carryouts. And these are some of the findings. This intervention trial just completed. So in each pair of bars, looks, oh, sorry, these, these things got a little off, but it's basically every four weeks there's another measurement. The first one is baseline. The... Um, the left-hand bar of the pair are the intervention carryouts. The right-hand bar are the comparison carryouts. And what you can see is the intervention carryout sales of those foods, of, of those selected healthier foods, are going up, in fact, somewhat dramatically. And in the, in the comparison carryouts, these gray bars here, we don't, I don't have data for these two right here, but essentially are remaining fairly stable or stagnant. So we were able to show some impact on the sales of healthier foods in these particular settings. So, you know, will that work in Colombia? Um, we're just completing a, uh, a review of the literature. It has not gone in for, um, for journal review yet, but we found 11 trials with prepared food sources that met our inclusion criteria. And we found that, well, here the data are a little bit less clear or good as compared to the data from our review article on small food stores. But basically, um, generally speaking, they are able to show increased sales of healthier foods in prepared food sources associated with intervention. And though in those fewer cases where any type of consumer level data was collected, um, we can see improved frequency and uh, improve awareness and frequency of purchase of the promoted foods. I think there's more work to be done in terms of trials to modify the prepared food source environment. But, um, but I do think that the initial results are encouraging about this kind of approach. Next trial. So wouldn't it be good if you could, you know, again, just corner stores, maybe that's not enough. Just carryouts, maybe that's not enough. So we've actually been working, again, in a multi-institutional kind of approach. And the approach that we, the project we created was called Baltimore Healthy Eating Zones, where the goal was to develop, implement, and evaluate an environmental program for low-income African-American children by creating healthy eating zones. And we wanted to see if it impacted on psychosocial factors, purchasing, uh, changes to the food environment and in food consumption, again, mostly at youth. We worked in 12, a little more than 12 recreation centers in the city. Half were intervention, half were comparison. 
Uh, again, this time we worked with both corner stores and carryouts nearby. We increased availability of healthy food options as we've done previously in corner stores and carryouts. Again, we had point of purchase signage. Again, we had interactive sessions. A difference is that we, we used or worked with peer educators to reach kids in those settings. And we did uh, cooking classes for kids in the recreation centers. The materials were developed by other kids. They were developed by an organization called Kids on the Hill, which is a organization that promotes social activism through arts and media work among uh, low-income children in Baltimore City. Again, we did interactive activities. We did cooking sorts of activities in recreation centers. Um, we have evaluated this one extensively, but we're actually still in the middle of, of, of doing our analysis. Some preliminary analyses show that this particular trial didn't have an impact on the overall sample, but when we looked at um, BMI percentile among those who were overweight, we saw some significant impact of the trial on those, especially girls, um, on those children who were already at the 85th percentile or above. So those early results are somewhat encouraging, at least for a small group. Okay, confusing slide. This is the culmination of all of those logos that you saw. <laughs> so many different trials. All of those trials were, had a, a comparison group. They all looked at change pre to post and compared that change pre to post and intervention versus the comparison group. And this is summarizing the, and so these are the ones we've done analyses for. It's summarizing the impact at the consumer psychosocial level, at the behavioral level, in terms of changes in consumer diet or BMI and at the store level. And you can pretty much see that we're fairly good at changing knowledge or in some case behavioral intentions. We operate largely from a social cognitive theory perspective. We've had a lot of success, but not always, in terms of changing uh, the frequency of purchasing of healthy foods, and in some cases changing how foods are prepared. Where a lot of, we've assessed diet in most of these, but we haven't done all of the analysis yet. But um, in those cases where we have done the analysis, we've seen gram increases in the frequency of in the consumption of foods that we were promoting. And in a couple of cases, we've seen some impact on BMI. In those cases where we've looked at impact on the stores, in two places we've seen impact, and in one place we didn't see any impact on the stocking of, or sales of healthier foods in those different settings. So putting it all together, all of this healthy stores work, um, I would say is that, well, we've got some ways to go, but we've seen some significant impacts in terms of changing psychosocial factors, dietary food purchasing behaviors, and potentially diet. So out of all of this work, I just wanted to say a couple of words about policy. Um, out of all of this work, we've, uh, we've developed some reports that we're feeding back, especially in Baltimore City, to the departments of planning, departments of health, and others. We're trying to influence the rezoning process that's taking place nowadays in Baltimore City. Um, we're also, so Baltimore City has a food policy advisory committee which is actually tasked with the, with the idea or the, the mission of improving the food environment. They have taken on an initiative based on the Baltimore Healthy Carryouts Initiative to uh, Im Im implement this approach in Baltimore City's public markets. We have six indoor markets that are primarily prepared food sources. We just got some funding from the NIH to implement a project called the Multi-Level Obesity Prevention Study which is going to work at many different levels with the food pack, so at the policy level to help plan this program, with wholesalers, which is something that I haven't done previously, but if you think about it, the wholesalers are the ones who supply the corner stores and carryouts with food, and so if you don't have them on board stocking the healthier foods, you're not going to get very far. I wanted to finish up with something completely different. So this is a project called OPREVENT, um, Obesity Prevention in, uh, in Native North Americans. And um, so this is the other main line of work that I'm engaged in. And this is certainly not my first piece of work in American Indian settings. I've been working in American Indian settings for about almost 20 years now. But this is the culmination of a lot of that previous work. And OPREVENT 
is a program that combines, it really takes this multi-institutional approach and tries to employ it in American Indian communities. So it's going to combine communications, family, food store, and worksite components for obesity and diabetes prevention. The idea is that it's better to engage community members as in a participatory process. We want to work in multiple places or locations to reinforce our messages and increase exposure to the intervention. We want to change the environment to increase access to food and physical activity opportunities. And we want to reach people, again, at the point of decision or the point of purchase. And we want to plan for sustainability from the beginning. We're working in five American Indian communities, especially with these groups within each community. We're obviously one of the partners, and we're also partnering, partnering with the USDA University Extension. We're working in three communities in, um, in New Mexico, the Alamo Navajo chapter, the Tuajale Navajo chapter, and Okeawinge Pueblo. We're also working in Michigan, in Hannaville Indian Community and Kiwana Bay Indian Community. And so these are the four programs, a family program for families of children in grades two through six, a store program just like you've seen before, a worksite program to increase physical activity and some sort of mass media program. The family program will center around a second through sixth grade health curriculum delivered to kids ideally in schools, but, but in some places it may not take place in schools. It involves a lot of storytelling as one of the main intervention components. And there's a family component where the child acts, we want or hope the children will act as change agents within their households to influence the food purchasing, physical activity behaviors of their parents and other adult family members. And we're also trying to encourage no chips and sugar sweetened drink policies in the schools. At the store component, very similar to what we said before, promoting the stocking of healthier foods, interactive sessions, shelf labels to identify healthier food choices, and a variety of other uh, types of media. At the worksite program, the emphasis, as I said before, is on increasing physical activity, and we're considering pedometer challenges. We're about a year and a half into this five-year trial, so we're just beginning implementation of the program now. The big idea is that, there, that with this multi-institutional approach, you'll have reinforcing programs that happen concurrently. So children will learn about healthy snacks as part of the school or the family program. They'll go home and they'll encourage their parents to purchase, for example, healthy snacks. Adults, when they go to the food stores, will see signage and maybe interact by taste testing uh, those healthy snacks in the stores. Maybe they'll hear about healthy snacks on the job as part of the worksite program. They'll hear about all of this as part of the community media activities that happen as well. So reinforcement coming from multiple institutions at the same time. We're going to be evaluating it very carefully with a lot of process evaluation measures, and we're going to be measuring um, impact at many different levels, including the ones that you see right there. So I just wanted to conclude very quickly that um, the healthy stores approach to changing the food environment appears to be workable in many settings, especially it's been tested in low-income ethnic minority settings. I think it's important to plan on or these types of interventions to address both the supply and demand, both consumers, which we usually already do, but also the people who are uh, controlling access, in this case, retailers. I think it's important to work in multiple institutions to achieve high exposure to interventions as a way of implementing change. And um, as I hope, I haven't really showed you the chronology of all of this work, but this is over about 10 plus years of time. We started off with initial small pilot trials and so forth, and we're moving on and thinking bigger and better, well, bigger is not always better, but in this case, bigger and better kinds of interventions. So our job isn't over just if we get one small intervention working. We have to think of what's the next step? How can we possibly move it to being something that could be disseminated? or can be sustained maybe through some sort of policy efforts. I want to acknowledge, so this is by no means all my work alone, I want to acknowledge many other uh, collaborators from many different institutions who have participated in this work. This is a very partial list of the many students and community partners who have been part of this work. And um, of course there have been many funders who have supported this work over the years. Yeah. 
It's a great question, and I only have anecdotal information, which is yes. So we would get requests from other stores to say, could we start, but of course we couldn't, right? Because we're trying to do this trial. So to say, could we have some of that? It's especially happened with the carryouts. So um, uh, could we get some of those materials or can you help us do this or can we, you know, can we do that? So there was interest um, from other small store owners to, to expand those settings. The MOPS trial that I'm gonna talk about is actually gonna be mostly citywide. So it will reach many more, again, it's not gonna reach all of them but it'll reach a much higher proportion of the prepared food sources and corner stores in Baltimore City, you know, in, in, in the realm of seven to 10 times as many as we've done previously. Yeah. I was Yeah, it's really important. So uh, we probably haven't done as much of that as we should, but we have done some. So we are you know, in a position to show how much it's increased the sales of healthier foods in those stores. We've prepared policy briefs and these sorts of things. We've prepared simpler communications to be used in the stores. What we need to do, which ha we haven't done, is do it in Korean, for, because most of the small stores are Korean uh, owned and operated, but we've had presentations back in, in I don't know about here, but in um, much of the United States, there's, an, uh, there's a national organization called KGRO, Korean, Korean American Grocers and Retailers Organization. It has a chapter in Baltimore City, and we found that to be a, a good mechanism to feed back um, to the Korean American retailing community. I would actually say that the fact that we seem to be further along or seem to have more impact at the small store level than at the small carryout level is just because there's been more attention in trials and more carefully evaluated trials at small stores than at carryouts. And most of the carryouts, in fact, the majority of people who are doing those trials have really only looked at impact at the carryout level. They haven't really looked at consumer impact. So there you're, you're missing a whole piece right there. And they've actually been fairly weak in terms of the intervention strategies. It, you know, let's just, the, the majority of them have said, let's just do, you know, menu labeling sorts of things. It's easy. And they haven't actually tried to work with the carryouts to increase healthiness of preparation methods or introduce other foods. So, I mean, I think there's a lot more that could or should be done in prepared food sources. and I strongly recommend that any of you who are doctoral students or even master's students who would consider taking on one of this, something like this as part of a project should consider doing this because there's, you know, by no means is the evidence base complete on what could happen by working in prepared food sources. Yeah. Yeah, so, so um, the way the citywide program is, we've chosen, we found 30 recreation centers which meet certain criteria, you know, more than 50% African American, certain below a certain level of income, so forth and so on. Um, half of those will be uh, randomized to comparison, half will be an randomized to intervention. And so we will be evaluating impact at the store level of those stores that are you know, within a quarter mile of that recreation center and those consumers who live near those recreation centers. There's no perfectly clean way, unfortunately, of randomizing within communities like this, right? Because there's no brick wall between the intervention and comparison areas and people probably will be exposed, people in comparison areas will probably be exposed to some degree to the intervention. So one thing that we do that helps is we do post-intervention assessment of exposure to the intervention, including recalls of whether they've seen different project materials, whether they've engaged or participated in any of the interactive sessions, whether they've visited any of the, you know, which corner stores or carryouts have they visited in the last week or month or something like that. And you can create an exposure scale, which creates a secondary way of evaluating the impact of the intervention. So the first way is intervention, 
comparison. What, you know, but, but a secondary way is to look at exposure. Yes, sir. So amount of money. The, there was a study by the Center for Livable Future done about four years back, so I don't have most up-to-date recent information, and they found that people were spending about $400, $450, this is low-income African-Americans in Baltimore City, were spending about $400 or so, or a little bit more, in supermarkets. They were spending about 250 or so in corner stores, and close to 300 in prepared food sources. So. The, the amount of dollars that were being spent were less in the supermarkets than in other food sources combined. What was the other part of the question? Well, how does that, you know, I was wondering how did that work into some of the food stamps and low income, and how did that relate to calorie content? Because it was spent $50, 50% more like food than you get 50% more calories. Great. So um, actually, I, I'm writing a grant right now <laughs> to look at this very issue because basically, I, I don't know for sure the answer to your question because you're the, the answer the question I that I'd like to be the answer I'd like to be able to give to you is of whatever number of calories people consume or whatever amount of vitamin A or whatever amount of fiber or whatever you know whatever nutrient we're interested in this proportion or this amount comes from prepared food sources like carryouts this amount come is it comes from you know Supermarkets, this amount comes from corner stores or, and so forth. I'd love to be able to say that, but I don't have that exactly. So um, all I can say is that I'm trying to get the money to do that. We do know that from some very early work that I did about four years or five years back in Baltimore, that little more than half the calories consumed were from a series of about 50 dietary recalls among African-American adults were coming from prepared food sources. But I didn't differentiate between corner store, I mean, between carryouts and fast food restaurants and sit down restaurants and, and delis within supermarkets. So I, um, now I'm you know, kicking myself, but you know, but um, well, it gives me something to do in the future. Other thoughts, questions, yeah? Right. So first I'll give my standard disclaimer, which is that I'm not, I'm just learning about policy. I'm just starting to get engaged within it. But what I've become convinced is if I want these programs, these, these ideas, which I think are good, to be disseminated and sustained, I have to somehow engage at the policy level. So how that happens differs greatly from setting to setting. So in American Indian communities, in some ways, it's easier if you can, it's a, it's a somewhat smaller entity. If you can convince tribal government that your project is meaningful, they have, I won't say absolute power, but they have a lot of power to decide, especially since a lot of them own, like the convenience stores are owned often by the tribe. They can make, they can control to a very large degree what goes in or what doesn't go into those stores. So in the American Indian context, I'd work with tribal government. In Baltimore City, there is this food policy advisory committee. Baltimore City has a food czar, so a food policy director. There's, only, there's about seven or eight food czars or food policy people. Yes, it sounds like something else, but anyways, in different cities around the US. But these are people who are tasked, tasked with improving the food environment in a particular city or location. So because we have this in Baltimore City, there's, you know, this person has been pretty proactive and is you know, working hard to bring together various people and to try and affect policy. She's, she's doing it in a number of, her name is Holly Freistadt in, in Baltimore City, and she's doing it in a number of different ways. But um, one of the ways is what I described before, working to change the, require, the, the foods that are served in prepared food sources at Baltimore City's public markets, right? Because there is, is more control at those city-owned markets 
about what people can actually sell. It's actually in their lease that they should sell X, Y, and Z. And frequently there's some healthy foods there that they may not be selling right now. So we have some more control over that. Then we sort of move up. The other approach that seems to be potentially doable in Baltimore is working through the rezoning effort. Baltimore has going, been going through, going through for the past two, three years, a rezoning plan called Transform Baltimore. And we have the potential in this particular setting, for example, to say that any food store or food source that falls within a quarter mile of a school is falls within a high risk zone or something like that. And we can create, I mean, it's really up to the will of the policymakers and legislators in the city of Baltimore to say that if you're within a quarter mile of a school, you have to stock X, Y, and Z or, you know, and, and what needs to be done. So we're working through the Department of Health and through that rezoning effort to try and get that to happen in Baltimore. It's going to be a long, probably a hard fought, I'm sure it's going to be a hard fought battle. I mean, there's forces arrayed against this sort of thing. Thank you very much.